0: Beloved saints, we hold in our hands something eternal, something beautiful. Uh, The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. O Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and our hearts. You know our fears. You know the doubts we struggle with. And we ask that you would flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace that you would open our minds to your truth, that you would grant us hope and that you would grant us faith. Increase our understanding. Allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of these, your scriptures. May your spirit be with us as we read and hear. May he grant us that we might delight in all that we encounter in your word. Amen. You may be seated. the most, the single most repeated command in Scripture is fear not, or something to that uh, effect. Something like, do not be afraid, or let not your hearts be troubled. It's, It's not something the Lord says once, it's not something he says twice, but he says it over and over, and we have to ask why does the Lord repeat himself so much? Well, things that the Lord repeats are things that we need to hear, and quite frankly, they're things that we are apt or prone to forget. So why do we repeatedly need to be told not to be afraid? Well, it's because we are plagued by fear. Uh, We're afraid of danger, we're afraid of the future, we're afraid of failure, we're afraid of being abandoned, of being alone, we're afraid of not being taken seriously, we're afraid of being weak, when we need to be strong, we are afraid of so many things. And what does that fear lead to? It leads to so many things. Think about the things we do in response to fear. Uh, We can be angry or we can be overly passive. We might drink to forget our fears or we might lie or we might blame others for things that we have done. We might resort to fighting. Uh, Sometimes because of our fears we overwork or sometimes we refuse to work at all. Uh, Fears lead us to hoard and be stingy and selfish Fears lead us to look for security everywhere and anywhere, hoping that there's something out there that will help us not be afraid. And we live, if you haven't noticed, in an age that seems to be defined by fear. Uh, I don't care what news network you watch, it peddles fear. Uh, it doesn't matter what your political convictions are. You can find someone who will tell you that the world is ending today or tomorrow at the latest. Uh, but day after day, this is what they're telling us. The, uh, doom is imminent. And it leaves you feeling what? Scared, helpless, weak, and lost. And then God has the audacity to turn to us and say, don't be afraid. And you're thinking, have you not been watching the news? Or maybe he's telling us that we're missing something. Two things tend to drive our fear. Uh, The first is when we look for confidence in our own strength. Uh, there are so many things outside of our control uh, there 's so much that we just can 't do to affect it but but when our confidence when we is in our own strength, when we look to ourselves it 's hard not to be scared. The second thing compounds this when we th- when we think that What we see around us in the world is the ultimate reality. It's the whole story. When we think that what we can see with our eyes tells the whole story, and then we think about how weak we feel, it really makes fear bad. When we look at our earthly circumstances, and how out of sorts the world seems, it's so easy to think that this is how it will always be. When we think about the end of the world or just our lives, it's hard to be confident that we're going to be okay. Psalm 93 is written for just such fears. It is a wonderful psalm for our age. It's a wonderful psalm for any age, ours included. Uh, And if I could summarize these five short, beautiful verses, it would be something like this. Your hope on the last day is not in you, or that you are strong enough or righteous enough, but that you belong to the one who is. Your hope on the last day isn't your own strength, your own righteousness, but that you belong to one who is strong and righteous. Jesus Christ. And and so you don't need to fear eternity. And if you don't need to fear eternity, you don't really have anything you need to fear. Because what can man do to you if your eternity is secure? In other words, the antidote for fear, antidote's a big word, kids, for cure, the cure for fear is understanding who God is. And so my plan as we look at this psalm is to, to first understand how verses 1 and 2 describe a sort of a coronation ceremony or enthronement of the king, of the Lord. And then we'll see that, that his enthronement is a reward for enduring a trial which is ultimately seen uh, on the cross in Jesus Christ. And then finally, we're going to see how this is meant to comfort us but not only comfort us, call us to respond with holy living. So that's, that's our goal. That's our plan this morning. Verse 1 itself can be translated in a few different ways. So, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And anytime you, you translate into another language, you have to sometimes make choices. Because words can be translated a few different ways. It could be translated, as we read it in our, our version, the English Standard Version, the Lord reigns. Or it could be translated, the Lord is king. Or it could even be translated, the Lord became king. Now, grammatically, that last option is actually the best, but it strikes us as the most problematic. What do you mean the Lord became king? He's always been king. Well, yeah, that's true in one sense. As, as God, the only God, as, as the self-existent one, the creator and ruler of all things, he's always been king. Absolutely no questions asked. The right to rule uh, is something that has always belonged to God. Yes. But it's equally true that there are episodes in the Bible that talk about him being exalted and, and enthroned in a new way. Uh, One of the most obvious, it's a passage we know, think of Philippians 2. Uh, It it tells us that because of what Jesus did on earth, of his willingness to be humbled and, and serve and to die... We're told that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Uh, Hebrews says something similar twice, actually. It tells us that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of his Father. And that's describing an enthronement. The king is taking his throne. It's a coronation of, exa- of sorts. And so the Bible can both say he has always been king and... Uh, He is exalted and enthroned as the one who has conquered and been victorious over his enemies. The Bible can say both. And we see both kinds of language in verses 1 and 2. In verse 2 we see he reigns forever, his reign is from from eternity. But in verse 1 we see this, he became king, he was enthroned. And the occasion for this song was probably the coronation of King David after the death of King Saul. Be, uh, verses 3 and 4 go on to describe this great battle against floods. Actually, a better translation would be rivers. And, and that image would have been immediately obvious to the ancient world. Uh, it's a little gruesome, but in the ancient world they had this thing that was kind of a trial by river or a trial by water. Back then, if someone was accused of doing something evil, one of the ways to test their guilt or innocence was to throw them in a raging river. Makes sense. And uh, the idea was, if, if this person is innocent, the gods will give that person strength to come back out of the water and will know that person's innocent. Uh, the strength to survive was really uh, proof of righteousness or innocence. If, on the other hand, the person was uh, guilty, they believed that the gods would not allow that person to come out of the river. And in that event, uh, the accuser would get all that belonged to the person who had mistreated him. If, if he did come out and it was proof that he had been falsely accused, the accuser then would be liable uh, to punishment for false accusations. And as David ascends the throne... They are likening all the suffering that he went through under King Saul to being thrown into a river, a raging river. He was accused of all sorts of evil. He was pursued, he was afflicted, and he had to hide in caves. His wife was taken from him, and his family was mistreated. And when it was all done, it was David who survived, not Saul. It's as if God is bearing witness that David is more righteous than Saul. And so Saul's kingdom is given to David as his reward. And that, of course, fits with what Scripture tells us. The kingdom was taken, 1 Samuel 15, uh, from, from Saul because of his refusal to obey. God said that David was a man after his own heart and he would give him the kingdom instead. And so this is a fitting image to to bring up as David takes the throne in Israel. It's as if, it's, it's, it's a metaphor, it's as if he has survived the raging rivers and he has emerged proof of his innocence amidst all of what King Saul had accused him of. And yet, as much as, as we, have, we see that, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that Psalm 93 doesn't actually mention David's righteousness and his struggle, but the Lord's righteousness and his struggle. Uh, and I think the image here is that David is being likened to his Lord. His, the story of David's uh, exaltation is being told in light of God's own story. And so verses 3 and 4, uh, in those two verses, it's the Lord who's going through the waters. The Lord is the one who's, who's enduring the raging rivers. And they're trying to overpower him. They're roaring and they're, they're screaming at him. And so while verse 1 says that, that he has put on strength as his belt, what's really being tested of the Lord is his, is his righteousness. Uh, the Lord's righteousness is His strength. He can endure the raging rivers if He is righteous, if there is no evil found within Him. And so, as as people accuse God of all sorts of evil, as they have done in all ages, He is put to the test, and He will survive. Their accusations if he is righteous, if no fault is found in him. And so it's fitting for Isaiah to say that that not strength is the Lord's belt, but actually righteousness is the Lord's belt. Because his righteousness is his strength. And so the rivers in Psalm 93, again, aren't literal, but they're an image of, of God's goodness, his own righteousness being put to the test. The Lord is on trial. And if he endures the test... It's a statement of his innocence, of his righteousness. His righteousness will be his strength. This image of God being tested through the waters of judgment is a recurring theme in scripture going all the way back to creation. Uh, So in the beginning, the earth is covered by water. It was formless and it was void and chaos reigned. And the Lord pushed back the waters and he brought forth dry ground. And when Psalm 29 tells the story, it does so as if it were a great battle. And then it it talks about God being enthroned and exalted as king above the waters, victorious over them. That image is then carried forward in uh, Genesis 6 through 8 and the flood of Noah. Because now instead of water covering the earth, it's evil that covers the earth. Uh, The floods come to judge between God and his enemies. And it's God who emerges from the flood as victor over the wicked at the end. By the time we get to the crossing of the Red Sea, it's become an expected and familiar image and theme. The tensions between God and Pharaoh have been escalating and it all comes to a head at the shore of the Red Sea. And and God and his people emerge on the other side while Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the sea. Isaiah in chapter 11 will later recount this uh, event as a vindication of God over Egypt just 40 years later the waters of the Jordan River are parted and God's people walk through into the promised land just like as when they pass through the Red Sea and, and, and those who witnessed it understood it to be God's testimony that they are the rightful heirs of the land And those who were in the land were uh, 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 trespassers. It was God's vindication of who has the right to the land. And so it says their hearts melted within them because they saw it as God's testimony against them. And all of that is to say this image of God being vindicated time and time again as he passes through the waters of judgment is a consistent image in scripture which is eventually picked up in baptism. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter in his epistle, his first epistle, uh, likens the flood to a baptism. Uh, Paul likens the crossing of the Red Sea to a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. And since the Bible likens the crossing of the Jordan to that of the Red Sea, we could say that by, by implication the, the crossing of the Jordan is a baptism as well. <coughs> Behind baptism, then, lies this image of trial by water. If you are righteous... If you are innocent, if you are without sin, you will survive and you will come safely through on the other side. If on the other hand, you're guilty, then only death awaits you. Now I know what you're going to say to me. Um, Pastor, you're not helping. Didn't you uh, tell us at the beginning not to be afraid? (laughs) But now you're you're scaring us. If our hope of survival is being guiltless, innocent and without sin, we have no hope. Pastor, you're not comforting us, you're scaring us. How could you dare start off with fear not and then tell us about what judgment looks like? Well, fair enough come back next week and no I'm kidding Um, did you notice that with the flood of Noah and the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan God's people survived and it wasn't because they were righteous but because they were with the one who was because they went through the waters with the righteous one they were safe and they were protected and they were brought safely through it all comes down to his righteousness and not ours our hope is in his ability to survive the judgment waters his righteousness is not just his strength his righteousness is our strength ultimately, though god 's righteousness it wasn 't tested at the Red Sea, it wasn 't tested at, at, at the flood of Noah, it wasn 't tested at the crossing of the Jordan, ultimately god 's righteousness was tested when he became man, walked this earth, faced temptation, and was given the opportunity to obey or disobey the commands. And he was accused of all sorts of evil. He was brought up on trial. But God would not stand for the judgments of man. Jesus would have to be tested to have his guilt or innocence revealed. And that, that test would occur on the cross and through the grave. If he could go through death and come out on the other side, it would be proof that he was righteous and that he could save his people from judgment. Is it any wonder then that as Jesus is anticipating the cross, he says, that's my baptism. That's my trial by water. Watch me go through it and you will know I am righteous. If he rises on the third day, he said it would be proof that he was perfectly righteous and able to save all his people with him. His righteousness would be his strength, and it would be our strength. And so as Jesus emerged from the grave on that Sunday morning, it was a verdict for all to see. Psalm 93 met its fulfillment as he silenced the thunderous waters of judgment. He was exalted and as Philippians 2 says, he was given the name above every name that all must bow to him as king. He ascended to heaven and he was crowned with glory and honor and he was seated at his father's right hand. And he did this for our sake so that we don't need to fear the last day. And so God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, fear not. There's that command again. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. And then do you remember what he says? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. For I, the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, the Righteous One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Fear not, I am with you. Here's the testimony of Scripture. If you belong to the Lord, you have nothing to fear on the last day. And if you don't need to fear the last day, you don't need to fear anything else. As Romans says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or as Hebrews says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? It's not saying that life might not be hard and painful. But in the grand scheme of things, if man can take away your life and the Lord can give it back, do you really have anything to fear? Now to say that God's righteousness is our strength and doesn't mean that um, uh, we need to worry about the last day doesn't mean it's saying we don't need to worry about our own righteousness. There's a difference between saying depend on your own righteousness and your righteousness doesn't matter. There's a big difference there. Because God repeatedly says, you shall therefore be holy because I am holy. Uh, Jesus has rescued you by his righteousness so that you would no longer be a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Is it any wonder then that, that Psalm 93, our psalm, concludes with... Your decrees or or your commands are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. How do you respond to God's gift of salvation? How do you respond to His rescue? Well, by obeying His commands. Not to make you righteous, but to respond to His. Because righteousness, holiness... Is is alone fitting for those who belong to Him? In just a few minutes, um, Peter and Danny are going to bring Teddy forward to be baptized, and this is the message of baptism. It's this: everyone must face judgment and account for all that they have done. Every single one of us. And you can either do that on your own. Or you can place your confidence in Jesus Christ, the only one righteous enough to pass through judgment and come out on the other side. And all who place their trust in him need not be afraid. And this is what is being proclaimed not just to us, but to Teddy today in his baptism. And so his baptism doesn't save him, but it calls him to salvation. It's a declaration uh, on one hand that he does not belong to the world, but he belongs to the people of God. But it's also to him a call to place his faith in Jesus Christ so that he does not need to fear the last day. And it's here at church and in his home that he will learn these precious truths, And hopefully one day stand before us and declare his trust in Jesus Christ. Peter and Danny, it's your privilege to help Teddy know where his hope is found. And why he doesn't need to live in fear. And why he can know peace and comfort and salvation in Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to ask uh, Peter and Danny and the boys if they want to come uh, up. And I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac as well uh, to come up as we uh, receive uh, Teddy today through baptism. making their way up I'm just going to say get used to this we're going to have a lot of babies this year so uh, this is fun Uh, Peter and Danny this is uh, in some senses as much about you As it is about uh, Teddy, because you're acknowledging that ultimately uh, he is the Lord's and you are the stewards, that you have the unique uh, privilege and responsibility uh, to keep God's truth ever before him so that he might soberly understand his need for salvation and joyously and wondrously see where it is offered in Jesus Christ. And so I have uh, a few questions for you first. As mom and dad, you've heard these before, you've answered before, but I'd like you to do it again with Teddy. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? Do you promise to teach diligently to Teddy the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church? And do you promise to pray regularly with... And for Teddy, to set an example of piety and godliness before him. And do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Teddy up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and fulfill the obligations of the covenant? All right. Diedrich, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this dear gift, this dear uh, unique privilege. Not just for the Diedrich family, though that definitely is true, but for us as a church as well. May we all love and encourage Teddy. May we all pray with and for Teddy. And may we all one day have the privilege of seeing him confess his faith in Jesus Christ. Place his hope in a Savior who is righteous enough to save him on the last day. And may we joyously rejoice when that happens, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.